Look, you're a man that people can't really find out much about. You're a bit of an unknown type of fly below the radar type of guy. And for many reasons, many good reasons. But for those who don't know, can you give people a synopsis of your career, how you got to where you are in like a two, three minute elevator pitch? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of deliberately fly um, under the radar. I'm not a big social media guy. So um, I guess it depends how far back you want to start. Uh, I went straight from year 12 into a sports science degree at Detroit University, which was a long time ago now. I think I finished that in 2010. I had a couple of years off whilst I sort of honed my craft a little bit. So my first position was actually in the TEC Cup with the Western Jets junior football. Uh, that sort of led into a couple of different things that led to the State Academy for AFL Victoria. It led to an internship at Collingwood. And then I ran those for a couple of years. 2016, an opportunity arose in America. So I moved across there on a bit of a whim to work in college football, doing a, a mix of sports science and strength and conditioning in GPS heart rates as well as coaching weights and warm-ups and all that sort of jazz. I ran that out for four or five months, which was a seasonal assistant role, which is great. Came back, went back into AFL uh, with both Melbourne Demons and KC VFL, where I was a high performance manager for the VFL team with a rehabilitation role uh, with the AFL team. In amongst that, I moved to London for... Uh, I, I quit strength conditioning for three or four months and moved to London with my partner at the time. Um, just needed a break from it, wanted to do something different with my life and uh, came back and just picked up with basketball. So now I'm with uh, both Franks and Blues in the NBL 1, which is, I guess, the VFL of the NBL, and then with Melbourne United in a strength conditioning sports science role again. So there's been a few roles in amongst that. I was with the Melbourne Aces for a while with baseball. Uh, I spent some time with Rowan Victoria in conjunction with the VIS. Um, I worked privately with uh, Wood for Sports Science for six of those years, obviously. Um, now I'm doing my own private strength and conditioning, and I'm also at Canberra Grammar. So I think that's everything. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff in there. But basically, right, right now, where my focuses are at the minute, um, Melbourne United are getting a season going with the NBL, which is great, so that'll be good. Um, Canberra Grammar and Frankston Blues have both been affected by COVID, much mm. more so. So I'm still employed there, but not working as such. So I'm just running my private strength conditioning business and Melbourne not currently. I wonder, like we've talked about so many different things over the years, but I think one thing I haven't asked you or talked about, but when you look at your career, like a decade long career, right? Don't give away my age. <laughs> How do you sum? Hey, it's experience. It's, it's a positive. How do you, what are the most common like learning pillars that you have picked up along the way like how do you summarize 10 years of experience and learnings and principles i'm still refining that myself honestly mm. i've sort of got a pretty strong belief in what i think is the most effective way to go about uh both athlete preparation and general training for health which are not necessarily um you know the same sort of thing they are actually at times pretty diametrically opposed in terms of what you mm. recommend but probably if I was going to summarize it 10 years of what I've done so far 80% of that is probably still stems from the four or five months I spent in America 
there's been a few things that sort of come and go. Some things it's reaffirmed, some things it's changed totally. Um, some things I, I disagree with what they did over there as well. So uh, probably from a learning point of view, I've refined it to a very, very basic four to five things I believe in as set in stone. And then the rest I'm sort of open um, based on the individual athlete. Um, a small amount will change due to uh, contemporary research, but not too much. I think a lot of that's actual fluff. And then just sort of back in your experience and try and draw a line between anecdotally what I believe to be true, which I'm quite comfortable doing. I've coached I don't know, thousands of guys by now um, and, and women, I should say thousands of athletes and people, but I, I don't have any problem drawing from anecdotal experience because I think that makes a big part of what we do. I think if you always sort of rely on research, then there's a bit of a fallacy that research is superior and it's actually not quite common quite often because it, it basically exists to get proven wrong in a lot of ways. When you, you said four, oh, that's a good point about the research and that's another topic, but you said four or five things. Yep. What are those four or five things, if you don't mind sharing? Sure. No, look, I, I basically a lot of it stems back to how the body responds. I think physiology has uh, a range of things that can happen within it, but within that, there's some things I know to be true. Um, basically, some things I revert back to, uh, everything works and everything stops working, which is basically how progressive overload applies to the window of diminishing returns. You can progressively overload most things for a period of time. Eventually that stimulus will cease to be effective and you need to try something different. That's, that's pretty big with what I believe in. I believe that a base level of strength and a base level of cardiovascular and respiratory fitness will allow you to facilitate greater goals both from a mortality standpoint for health. So there's great research around strength and cardiovascular health with regards to uh, mortality rates and age um, and quality of life, but also they've, they've actually fund a lot of athletic traits. So uh, power, speed, agility, those sorts of things. I believe that basically where I, drive, I derive my training programs from, which we have discussed previously, are sort of five main areas. Probably 80% of my work comes from either weightlifting, yoga, gymnastics, martial arts, and track and field. And the 80% of program that I derive from that, there is a bit of a, uh, a buffer there where I allow myself to sort of put some uh, remedial exercises in from the physiotherapists I work with who are very intelligent, but also things that the athlete likes to do and some things in bodybuilding as well. So just sort of getting those different disciplines and sort of tying them together. Yeah, so five ranks right there. Um, with progressive overload, what, I wonder, what is your marker for intervening with another variation to push past, uh, a plateau? For example, some people believe, all right, if that person is plateaued for one to two weeks, that necessitates uh, a variable change. Do you have that type of approach? I have had that type of approach as is often the case. It depends on the individual circumstances, mm. but I believe that we don't really squeeze enough juice out of lemon before we change the yeah. stimulus. I, I, I think people have a, a very, very skewed view of what is considered highly trained and plateauing after, if you plateau after five weeks of lifting, you're either a physiological outlier or you've had very bad programming or both. Uh, I, I think that there is so much, basic uh, things you can do to adapt a program, whether it's increasing the density of the workout, so getting more done in less time. We don't often visit that. 
we don't often adjust tempos all that much range of motion um you know there's so many things frequency of sessions is a big one i mean you may think you've plateaued doing three sets of five squats twice a week but you could do three sets of eight very sub-maximal work four to five times a week with a front squat or a back squat and a goblet squat and sort of adding these things together so i think there's a lot of things you can do to really sort of you know squeeze the look all the juice out of lemon really dry it up and then that's when you can move away from it because very very few people i believe need complex interventions in their training program you're still saying like subtle variations it's hard to say the time duration subtle variation changes every four to eight weeks ish uh look it can be even even less than that i think the thing that often often promotes the change and sort of gets the change happening is athlete feedback mm-hmm. and or coaches getting bored with what they're doing. Um, I feel like it takes a bit of courage and also a good relationship with the athlete to say, this is going to work. If it was exciting and easy, it would be, everyone would be doing it. But the reality is there's a certain amount of courage as a coach and a certain amount of um, almost ruthlessness that says, no, we are going to stick to this program because it is proven to work. But there's a monotony and a strain that comes with sticking to a certain exercise for so long. And that's a very complex thing that depends on the athlete's motivation. It depends on their training age. It depends on their skills. And it depends on the relationship with the coach. If they believe the coach is going to uh, facilitate a tangible change, then they're probably going to stick to it. But if they don't believe that to be the case, it's very easy to say, I need something different every four to five weeks to how do you, what questions then do you ask yourself that determine whether the athlete is right and we need more novelty and to switch it up versus the coach is right and we need to keep sticking with what we're doing? Ooh, that's, that's a tough one. Um, that can really change. Uh, I guess... Is there like a framework you go in your head? It's like, okay, if we see this, this and this, then this. It, it probably depends on what else is going on with them in their life. Yeah. I'm pretty, I hope it's not in an arrogant way. I'm very confident in what I believe to be true, which is, that's all it is. It's what I believe to be true. Uh, It's not nothing more, nothing less than that. So I trust myself that I know that a slow progressive approach is going to work. So from that point of view, I guess it's up to me to articulate and communicate that to the athlete. So they feel the same way. If they don't feel the same way, it could be because, there's things interfering with the training where they're not getting the results, but nobody gets bored of getting results. Right. So if there is a, a change they can feel, a change they can see, um, that helps quite a lot. Um, but there'll be times when you can't see and you can't feel the change. And that's when you need to say to the athlete, okay, is there something else that's actually pulling at your uh, energy system that's detracting from that? Could be lack of sleep, could be bad nutrition, could be more time spent on the court or the field or just the actual sports they're involved in. Um, it could be work, relationship troubles, all those sorts of things, which are going to detract from a very linear growth pattern. But for the, for the most part, uh, I've got a pretty good confidence in myself. And I think naturally athletes and even personal training clients are drawn to confidence and charisma, sometimes to, to a detriment. It is sometimes to a detriment because they can't distinguish between the knowledge that some people have and some people don't. But if you are confident in what you believe in, it makes it easy for the athlete to believe in that. And that's, that's sales really that if you're buying a car from someone, 
and they're very confident in the car's uh, performance and reliability and that sort of thing, it makes it a much easier purchase. If a salesman goes, oh, I'm not quite sure whether this is the right car for you. I'm not quite sure how reliable it is. We've had a few different pieces of bad feedback. You're not going to buy that car. And, and that's what you're really trying to do with a training program is convince the athlete that your credibility matters and you've got the interests at heart first and foremost as well. So in that case, like we work with a lot of students that, well, we are produ- all with students who are doing their cert threes and fours. So mm-hmm. a lot of them don't have that confidence because they haven't gone through the experiences to earn that confidence or whatever it may be. When you they were younger, I haven't made the mistakes either. Well, that's a th- that's what I want to get at. Like, what what do you think people need to do to earn and find that level of confidence that you've developed? You need to push yourself to the limit, which you you and I have discussed uh, in our own conversations. But I don't think the vast majority of people know what the human body is capable of. Yeah, and that can come from. It doesn't necessarily always need to be with a barbell. You, you can push yourself to an ultra endurance event. You can push yourself to, you know, in extreme, extreme cases, uh, famine. You can fast. You can um, just do speed training and see what you can achieve. You can try and purposely gain 10 to 15 kilos, then try and lose it again. But I don't think people have a whole lot of fluctuation in, in the stimulus that they put on themselves. Um, I've never been a, a big guy, but I've gone through phases of my own training where I think it, it, at one point I've put on, I put on 14 kilos in 16 weeks and then I lost it all again across 20 weeks. So I know what it takes to gain weight for your hard gainers. People say, I can't gain weight, I can't put on weight. I, I know how they feel. That's generally me. I'm, I'm a more of an ectomorph body type naturally. But people say they can't lose weight. I've also done that too. Um, for me, I, back in, back in March, I, I did a, a fundraising event for charity where I did, um, 2,200 pushups in a day, which is basically the most mentally and physically, uh, emotionally exhausted thing I've ever done. Um, and I've done that. I've, I've, I've missed heavy deadlifts. I've, um, I've hurt my wrist maxing out a clean. I've, I've had to have spotters lift the bench of a barbell off my chest. So I think when you push yourself to those limits in, in some regard, that does help give you much more confidence in what you know to be true. Because the problem when you're a young coach is you can't control how people see you because you can't, you don't have a lot of experience to draw upon. So when you don't have a lot of experience to draw upon, the best thing you can do is experience on yourself and then try and just parlay that into some uh, experiences with your athletes. I mean, it makes me think when you, so basically what I'm hearing is you, you need to like do daring things and challenge yourself and physically test your limitations of your physiology and psychology. Is that where you're going? I think at some, I think at some point that's really healthy to do that. Yeah. It does, and it sort of gives you a greater empathy for yeah. what your athletes are going through. Um, it gives you a much greater understanding of, when people come and say, oh, I'm really sore, I'm really tired, I'm sick of doing this. If you've never been sick of doing a training program, you've probably never followed a good one, is the honest truth. Like I'm sure what a lot of people speak about is discipline versus motivation, which is a, a different topic for today. I, I don't think that's entirely true. But there comes a point in time where you just have to do what needs doing to improve. 
and that might mean eating when you're not hungry if Absolutely. you're trying to gain weight. Yep. It, it, and, and conversely, it might mean when you are hungry, not eating if you're trying to lose weight. It might mean when you have a full-time job, you've got to wake up at five o'clock in the morning to get your workout done because it might take longer today. Your workouts more, might be an hour normally, then they become a two-hour workout. Are you going to wake up earlier and do that? There's lots of different things that you can do to really push yourself um, from that point of view because, the, like, as I said before, when you're a young coach, it's something that I didn't, I didn't do enough. You don't have experience to draw upon. You can't say, oh, I coached this person and this worked. You can't say, oh, this person I helped progress through the junior football ranks then went to the AFL. I've seen their long-term development over three to four years. You, just, you don't have that to draw back on. But if you can say to your athlete, hey, I, I've added 50 kilos to my squat over a two or three-year period or – um, I'm, a, I'm a power lifter by, by profession, but I trained for a marathon once just to see what it was like or, or all those sorts of things are really powerful tools in generating really good conversations first and foremost, but also trust with your athletes that you know what they're going through. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, recently, I actually did a, a workout for Adidas, for the Adidas office where I ran like a sort of at-home Zoom workout for their clients. My, my general modality of training when the world is normal uh, I, I like weightlifting. So a lot of my programs are based around clean, snatch, front squats, push presses, pull-ups. Very, very simple, boring things that you overload over a long period of time. And I've always considered myself pretty strong uh, in absolute measures, but mostly for relative to my body weight. And I did an at-home workout via Zoom with Adidas guys from a corporate point of view, which was basically bodyweight squats, bodyweight lunges, uh plank abductions, lots of different things you can do at home. I'm sitting there thinking, this is easy. And I woke up sore the next day from a, from a, a body weight, 30-minute, uh, high-intensity, high-frequency, metabolic-style workout. So even that in itself, I, I've gone into that thinking, I can squat 140, 150. I can bench press you know, 100, 110 if I'm having a good day. I can do 20 pull-ups. I can do all these things that I have markers for myself five sets of 10 bodyweight squats every 30 seconds should be easy. Right. It, it actually wasn't. So right. sometimes when you expose yourself to things we're not familiar with, that can be really, really good because it shows that you are human too, because we only adapt to the stimulus that we put on ourselves. That's a really great point, And I hope people can implement that in their lives. Jen Flack has a question and she wanted to ask on this topic, if you could go back looking over all these years, would you do anything differently? Career, education, experience? Uh, the one thing I would do differently is I would have trained a lot harder a lot earlier. I, I don't think I really took weight training seriously until I was probably about 25, 26. And it probably peaked when I actually went, went to the States. It, I just had to. <laughs> I, I was forced to. Yep. Um, and I, I look back really fondly upon that. I was living with a guy who was an incredible weightlifter, national champion in America. Um, and he, he was my, probably still is my greatest mentor I've had. And I thought I trained well. And I've been telling people I've been coaching for the four to five years prior. No, no, I trained hard. And I, I really didn't. I just thought I trained hard in my own perception of myself. So I think I definitely trained a lot harder a lot earlier. Um, I did start training for a marathon once and I, I hurt my ankle playing footy and I stopped. I wish I completed that just so it's another thing I can um, understand a lot better. Hmm. and they're probably the main things. I, I don't have a lot of 
regrets. Uh, I, I think everything I've done has then led to something else down the track. So I think the only other thing outside of that, which I would change is the stories you tell yourself when you're 23, 24 about being ready. They help to, they, and they did help me to drive myself saying, I'm ready to work at the top level. I'm good enough to coach these guys. And that those missions I tell myself really helped me get out of bed in the morning and, and pursue all these uh, both national and international uh, opportunities that I've had, but I, I wasn't, it is the flat out truth. So I guess it's just getting the balance right between telling yourself that you are good enough to do it, but also realizing there's a lot more to do to catch up to the guys that I thought I was trying to emulate. Mm. It's really unique perspective because sometimes, sometimes you can trick yourself into more confidence, but that confidence you've tricked yourself into actually helps you perform better compared to if you were more doubtful of yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess the reason I, I say that is if I, I mean, I, I feel like I've had a pretty good career so far. Um, I am proud of it. I don't mind saying I'm proud of it. There's more I'd like to achieve. But if I, sh I've, I spoke about the jobs that I have done, I could give you a list of jobs I've missed out on. Um, I've had interviews with NBA teams, NFL teams, AFL teams, EPL teams, um, God, I've, I've had like those interviews and I've sat there and I've gone through the process and when I've, I've missed them, I've gone, man, like, why didn't I get that job? And, and I always think that I was good enough to do it. But I look back now and think, I, I only feel now like I'm getting to the point where I can do that job now. But at the time I was so sure that I could. So I, I guess it's just, um, trusting yourself but you having a good support network around you because you, you need people to tell you that you can do those things mm. but you equally need people to tell you this is a step to take to make sure of that that to make sure you get that job next time it comes up to make sure that you know you're not overlooked due to a lack of skills or experience and those are the sorts of things which are pretty hard for the strength conditioning industry that every job wants five years full-time experience coaching an elite level team at any given time there's a hundred of those jobs available and all those jobs are already filled. And when they're already filled and a job comes up, that five years experience that's required is one guy coming from one job to another job. It doesn't actually open jobs up for a younger audience. It just opens up jobs for people to shift and change between teams and sports. So I guess that's really tough. And once you, once you sort of stop putting those things on a pedestal, you, you get out of your own way and you start to put things in place to help you achieve those goals. When do you well, how do you realize to not put those things on a pedestal because they were glorified and they're looked at very highly and they can help drive people, but can they are, they, they, they still drive me. And yeah. I, I don't, I don't have any shame in saying that. I, I know where I want to go. I, I know what my dream, well, I, I sort of think I'm pretty close to my dream. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've got a good mix of, I, I, I really enjoy um, sport. I'm a, I'm a competitive guy and everything I do is, for game day. I, I love winning. I'm, I'm a winner. I hate losing. If I bet on two snails racing up a wall, I want to pick the winning snail. Um, so those experiences you get when you are in a winning environment with a great group of guys, they're, it's a very unique thing. I'm, I'm not going to say they're unmatched because obviously people are fulfilled through family and friendships that can match that, that elation but it's a very unique feeling and it's something I still chase. And that's where I love the opportunities that I've been presented with. And I'm very grateful for Melbourne United 
and, and NC State and Melbourne and Collingwood and all these people have given that to me. But I also like having a side job. I've always worked three or four jobs. I love working privately. Um, I love coaching the doctors, the engineers, the teachers, the accountants, all, all those people that are trained. I, I really enjoy those personal relationships as well. So um, I think I've got the mix I want in my life right now. But in terms of taking those things off a pedestal, it's a luxury that I have, haven't been exposed to it, but athletes are people and people are athletes. And the distinction put upon them is societal. Once you break that down, they go home to their wives, their kids, they, they shop at Safeway. Um, you know, they, t- they walk the dog on the weekends and that's it. They're, they're the same people. They just get paid to play sport because they're better at sport. So, um, if you think about that from a, I guess, a ideology point of view, you should be training the teacher or the doctor or the engineer or the physios that you train. You should be training them with the same intent and purpose that you'd be training a professional athlete because they are the same people. The outcome may be different, but you, you can't fake authenticity or care. And I think that's what will help you move up and get better relationships with better people. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. It's treating people like people, people first. Um, Jeremy had a question. Jeremy Borzillo, MA man. He Rich. wants to know, yes. Interested to know, Jay, as well as Alex, what sort of training business life lessons have you taken from Melbourne United and all the mentors you had in your coaching career? We've both had different experiences there. But Sorry, so- run that by me again. So what was, what was the first part of that? He's interested to know what sort of um, training business life lessons uh, we have and you have taken from Melbourne United. I'll go that first half first. And then he wanted to talk about the mentors that you've had there. Life lessons. Yeah. Um, I think it's the big thing is that at some point in time to really get where you want to go, someone has to take a chance on you. That's the reality because I I entered this industry knowing nobody. Um, When I enrolled in my degree, there was 120 students. I didn't know anyone. I didn't catch the train to uni with anyone. And I didn't have any of the networks I've got now. And the only reason I've got those now is because at some point in time, someone took a chance on me and thought we'll give him a shot. And that, that's still happening now. And I think you need to be very cognizant of that because there's no certainties. I, I could have been offered my first job at the Western Jets and turned out to be an arsehole. And I could have been very detrimental to the culture the club had in place. So I always think that I need to provide opportunities for people as well where I can because I've had the opportunity to repay the faith that the people have put that in me. And I think one of the things that, really works with me. I work with a great high performance manager at Melbourne United. He, um, he may or may not want to be named. Um, so I, I, I won't. Um, I'm sure you can look him up. If you yeah, want to dots, exactly. but, um, phenomenal person. And it's, it's what he values from a family point of view and a relationships point of view. That's probably taught me a lot. Um, and it, it's just how to generate authenticity and, and just be yourself. It's not, I, I'm, um, for those who don't know me, I'm, I'm about 5'9", 5'10", 75 kilos, not the fittest, strongest, fastest, 
ripped guy. I've never never been any of those things at any point in time. But it's just about using your individual traits to build relationships with those around you. I think when you treat people with a, a base level of care, that's the most important thing. Treating everyone, the, not, not necessarily everyone the same as such, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily true. Yeah. I think it's giving everyone a base level of courtesy and inter- how you interact with them. Yeah. And I think the measure of people is how you interact with someone or how you care for someone that you can't receive anything from in return. Mm. So that's the, that's the measure of things which I've, I've learned. And, and United as a club do a great job of that. There's, you know, nobody walks past someone without saying hello. At the moment, we're all very grateful for the, the cleaners that clean the offices and the gyms and the courts that allow us to practice because without those COVID safe plans, we, we wouldn't be allowed to do what we're doing right now. And I, I think probably that's been heightened recently due to the pandemic, but um, just the, the human side of things is what's probably been reaffirmed for me in terms of a life lesson as well. But I think also, um, as I said before, at some point in time, someone needs to take a chance on you. And at some point in time, you'll need to take a chance on someone else. So that, that just comes down to uh, trust and also just read, reading people. How did you even gain or if you have people listening out there right now the coaches who are looking to get in a similar position to what you are you know what do you tell them to have that because there's a limited number especially in australia so somebody's going to lose and somebody's going to win and more people are going to lose than win yeah yeah and there's an attrition rate there's people there's people that will give up and i don't I don't judge anybody who walks away from strength and conditioning or sports science as a profession. It, it, it is a grind. It will detract from some parts of your life. So I guess you need to make the decision for yourself. If what you get out of it is fulfilling enough to offset what you lose from it, which right. is oftentimes uh, unsociable work hours. It's a lot of working from home. It's sending late night emails. It's answering calls while you're cooking dinner. And I don't begrudge anyone who walks away from that because there's more to life than work. And I think that's something which I've realised in the last 12 to 18 months is that I have been consumed by work. I've had four to five jobs at a time while studying a master's degree because I've just tried to fit it all in. That wasn't necessarily smart. And I look back now and it probably adversely affected some relationships I had, more so with um, partners than friends and family. My friends and family have always supported that, but... Um, you only have a finite amount of energy and how much you can give to people. So yeah. I think with that in mind, some people walk away, not because they're not passionate and not because they don't have the drive. It's just, they prioritize other things in their life. It might be financial stability so you can have raise a family. It might mean you need to support your parents who are retiring. It could be, um, you know, you just are sick of the hours because you need to support your partner. And, and I, I sort of did that in a way um, when I quit, and moved to London with, for my partner. I, I didn't have a job when I went over there. She, I went to support her career for a while and uh, that didn't work out. I don't really regret doing it because I needed to do that for myself as well. Mm. But uh, I think I think a lot in that is that you just need to be persistent. As I said before, I, I'm, I'm not special. I'm not overly intelligent. I'm not overly smart. I'm not the best communicator. I'm not the best coach. I'm not the best sports scientist. So... Uh, it, it sort of sounds cliche that if I can do it, anyone can. It's not just as simple as that. As I said before, it, it does take people... It will take somebody to take a chance on you at some point in time. I think it's how you repay that person 
and how you engage with the organization that you're in will obviously obviously dictate how far you can move. So I think when it all boils down to it, you need to have a, a cost benefits uh, way up and then decide what, what you want to pursue. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. And I, I would actually like to see, I'd like to see when people enter uh, this industry, how long they think it's going to take to achieve their primary goal. I think most people that end up in professional sport anyway, they probably don't really get a full-time job until you're in your thirties and it's probably not going to be exceptional money. So it's everything you do amongst that, whether it's building a side business or whether you work in an entirely different profession as a backup plan, it might mean you study an MBA just in case it doesn't work out and move into the business world uh, or, or teaching is really common too. So I think you need to have a plan in place for how long you're willing to um, push it and mm. jobs, jobs will open up. I mean, good people find themselves in good places. That, that's, that's, not, that's not an exception. That always happens. But most people don't think about and pl- plan and prepare mentally for the hardship and the duration that it's going to take. I mean, did you, th- I don't know, like, did you think about it when you were younger? Like, huh, this is going to be a five to 10 year plus slog that it might take me to get what I want. I thought it might be five. Okay. Yeah. But you uh, did think quite long term though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I looked at it and thought, is a twenty two? And I I knew this quite early on. Is a twenty eight year old professional athlete going to listen to a twenty two year old who studied the human body for three years? Mm. Probably not. Mm. And 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 rightfully so. Some people disagree with that, and they think that if you if you can help someone, then anyone should listen to anyone. But I would not put my livelihood in the hands of someone who doesn't have experience. I, I know that personally. So if my livelihood, um, obviously, due, which is largely financial, would I put that in the hands of a financial planner who's 22? But here's the thing, like someone needs probably, to check it, take a chance on somebody. Like hey, that 22-year-old needs to get experience somehow. But we all right, do. Right, right, exactly. So uh, as, as I said before, that's something that people don't talk about. I've... I've taken a chance on a few people that um, it's in terms of not worked out for various reasons. Um, but I've also met some phenomenal people that I will, I will employ in the future if I get the uh, chance to. Um, but by the same token, I mean, I, I get people hit me up on LinkedIn and uh, off the ASA website on a regular basis, which uh, again, I'm really grateful for. I, I think I respond to all of them. I hope I do. Uh, I try to do that at a bare minimum, but if I can't help you from a shadowing hours point of view or a uh, internship point of view, uh, at the very least, I, I try to make myself available for a, an email or a coffee or a phone call to help because those things are invaluable. And, and as I said, people have given me that uh, yeah. luxury whilst I've been trying to cut my teeth, so to speak. Absolutely. I want to go back to NC State days I wonder, that seemed like a very, very formative, I know we talked about it before, but I know it was a very formative experience for you. It was very paramount, like pivotal in your career and life as a human being. When you reflect back on that, what do you think are the major learnings and pillars that you take away? You're not going to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to make dis- like decisions and make strong decisions and be willing to live with them. Um, for me, that was t- 
telling my partner at the time that in, I think, 11 days, I was moving away for five months. Um, not, it wasn't the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, certainly wasn't easy, but I had to make a decision that that's where my life was heading. Um, she supported it. She didn't necessarily like it at the time, but um, you have to make hard decisions. You have to be also willing to listen, but also speak when people ask for your opinion. I think sometimes people are very, um, what's the word? Sort of apprehensive around offering your opinion. If, if someone asks for your opinion, it's probably for a reason. So I certainly didn't fly, you know, 20,000 miles over the other side of the world to sit there when someone asked my opinion and go, oh, whatever you think. Yeah. You know, they, they knew going in there that I had a different skill set, largely around sports science and GPS. They knew I'd come from a different culture from a sporting point of view. Um, they knew that I, I had a, a different uh, academic background as well because not a lot of strength coaches in America have the traditional sports science degree. So I think one of the things for me that it sort of said was when you do get your chance to speak up, to speak up. And that... That obviously helped me in really high regard because I, I know for a fact they're still using some things that I put in place when I was over there. So um, that's and that's a real that's a real credit to them because they're far better than me. They're far better than I'll ever be. But they were willing to sort of be open to the fact that there's things that they didn't know and make a decision if that could positively impact their program. So it made me feel really welcome, um, made me feel valued. But it also meant that there's a time that you have to put aside your preconceived notions of what I had done previously to have your mind really opened up, which it, it was. Yeah. There's a big humility in being open enough to learn and absorb from almost anybody, even when you're at the upper echelon at the top, like an NC state. And, and that that's hard. That's yeah. really hard. We got, well, how do you practice that then? Like, because it's a, how do you, it's almost like, how do you practice humility in the face of pure confidence in your ability, almost on the border of arrogance that helps you perform? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I think is the best thing for that. And you did it to me the very first thing that we spoke about, probably the first two questions. If someone asks you what you do, and I didn't necessarily describe it what I do. I've more sort of spoke about my background, which was in line with the question. Mm. But you need to be able to surmise what you do, what you believe in, and who you are in a very succinct fashion. Mm -hmm. Because yes. there'll be a point in time where you might meet someone in an elevator or on the golf course or at the supermarket or um, at a family a gathering or if they're allowed ever again. Um, and nobody wants to hear... 10 minutes of you talking about yourself because that does come across as quite arrogant and quite, um, you know, sort of narcissistic in a way. If you can make that quite concise and informative, that's a real powerful tool because then when you have the same thing with the, the question around what do you believe in? I got asked that in an interview for an AFL club when I was 25, 26, and I, I remember it now and it probably counts against me in the long run. It took me 15 minutes of talking to articulate that. And no, it's something I'm working on, which you guys have probably already seen today, but nobody wants 15 minute answers to short questions. If you say, what do you believe in? You should have a very, very quick recall of this, 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 this. And you have to have a very, you have to have a willingness to be 
have someone go, I don't believe any of those things you just said. Because once you put out there what you do believe in, it's open to criticism and it's open to uh, also just conversations and critique of people going, I don't believe that at all. And it could be a method, it could be a philosophy, it could be uh, a mentor you've had. Um, So I think if you can answer those questions very, uh, as I said, concise and informatively, then it's going to go a long way to helping you have those conversations. It's a great point. I think you're doing a great job so far, Jay. And I know you will, you can, you can go on because you have a lot in that big bold brain of yours, but I can go on. I can go on. I'm working. I'm saying, see that that's something I'm working on. I'm working. I know. On. Yeah. I notice it. Strength and conditioning is a funny profession. It's not very well understood. So if for example, you can't, explain what you do and how you do to your grandma you probably don't understand it and you probably don't have a refinement in your methods that you do yep. so I, I always like to think you know um i could meet the ceo of the dallas cowboys at an airport in la and probably not know who he is right like you probably wouldn't know what he looks like just say for example you end up sitting across him and this is how this is how it happens it's, it's what's called happenstance and I remember one of my lectures at uni um, spoke to me about what happenstance is and it's basically when preparation meets opportunity. So it's not pure luck because there's a preparation component to it. But if he sits there and goes, oh, hey, man, like, you know, um, you're from Australia. What are you doing in America? And I say, oh, I'm a strength conditioning coach and this is what I do. That could lead to a job within 30 seconds or it could lead to someone saying, shut up, man. Like I don't need your life story after 10 minutes. So I think that's a really, really uh, tangible piece of takeaway that people can practice. Can you explain to someone you've just met what you do and have them understand it? Great. That's, that's, that's really, really important point. And that's built on the foundation of self-awareness of who you are. And also practice it. Like, right. Practice telling someone what you do, because I know that when you're a sports science student, you're always sort of, I study a bit of nutrition. I uh, study a little bit of GPS. Uh, I, I do a bit of biomechanics. No, no. What, what, what do you do? I'm a personal trainer for 12 clients from a variety of uh, professions and I help them improve their strength, their fitness, their quality of life. Cool. That's the difference right there. Yeah, absolutely. We got, I'm a chef. We got Jordan, Jordan Radliff. We got all the LSU students up in here asking great questions. Jay, with all your experience in sporting teams and gyms, how important do you believe the integration between allied health professionals and S&C coaches is and how can we improve it? Integration is the key word in all of that. It is important. And I think the only way we can, or not the only way we can improve it. I, I think the best way we can improve that is to totally change what we study. I don't think the sports science degree or the exercise science degree or the human movement degree prepares anyone for anything at all. And I say that with all due respect to my alma mater, they've done their thing, they've done their job, but I think a basic science degree with featuring anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, um, maybe even chemistry, I think those sorts of things would draw a greater parallel and then have different uh, vocations branch off from that. So in my ideal world, I think um, physiotherapists and osteos and podiatrists and sports science students and 
any other thing that sort of falls on that banner, even dietitians that matter. I think if they all entered into a science degree and first year they understood physiology, anatomy, biomechanics, blah, blah, blah. And then second year, they sort of branched out a bit more to their uh, chosen pathway. Third year, they branched out a little bit more. Fourth year, they branched out a little bit more until they sort of refined their focus. I think that would be very pivotal in changing the relationships we have because I just don't think that there's an understanding of what each of us have studied and what each of us actually know. Sometimes we, sometimes, and rightfully so, physiotherapists have an expectation of sports science and, and exercise science students have a very good understanding of anatomy. And we should, because we're training the human body. We are training the human body. Ellis has officially frozen. Here we go. We're getting back, ladies and gentlemen. Just stay with us. Satellites are working to try and get us back. Technology is doing its best right now. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We are getting back on the spaceship. Uh, sorry, guys. I'm back. All right. Here Step we go. Here, <laughs> um, so, um, Where were what we? I was, uh, what I was saying was there's an expectation of what each of those different professions really know about the other. And if you're a physio, for example, you sort of have a, a, a right and an expectation that if you're referring to a a sports science person who's become a personal trainer, that they should understand anatomy. That's a fair assumption. You've studied a sports science degree. I think I did two units of anatomy. Two. Two in my undergraduate degree. And I'm pretty sure they were both in the first year. Cool. If not, it was, it was first year and start of second year, right? So the sort of, the what gets lost in translation is, you're referring to someone with a, a very particular muscle injury and go, oh, they should understand they've studied it. But I know physiotherapists study the anatomy in depth across two, three, four years before they graduate. Uh, conversely, sports science guys probably do two, three, four units of programming, advanced distance training, blah, 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 blah. And we had this expectation of physiotherapists that they know how to integrate a squat into a rehab plan. But I know that physiotherapists don't do a lot of prescription and programming and resistance training at university. So somewhere in there, there's a, a disconnect. And the only way that we can repair that right now is to reach out to people to create relationships and also to be willing to learn what different disciplines actually do. We have to do that ourselves. But I think long-term, the best change we can make was from a, an educational standpoint to have that um, have those sort of streamlines drawn for us and then work on the relationships later on. But I think there's a bit of a mix of both those things happening. So in that case, what, how would you design, like we have like students who are going to do and listening to this, they're going to do a degree at some point. We have people listening who are already studying right now. What would you recommend them to change, alter? Like, is there an ideal degree in your mind or do you think just get one with the most electives that you can customize? Um, yeah, there's an ideal, ideal degree in my head. Do you want to hear what it is? It's Tell exciting. Me. As I said, everything I do is boring. Year one, it's anatomy 101, physiology 101, biomechanics 101, 
Resistance Training 101. Got it. Year two, it's Anatomy 102, Physiology 102, Biomechanics 102, Resistance Training 102. Year three, it's Anatomy 103, Physiology 103, Biomechanics 103, Advanced Resistance Training 103. Mm-hmm. Year four, you can specialize. You can do GPS. You can do nutrition. You can do physiotherapy, manual treatment. You can do biomechanics. You can do whatever you choose. But the base level of understanding of physiology is poor. It's shocking, <laughs> honestly. Mine's, mine's okay. And I'm Yours is good. Come on, mine's okay. Mine's okay. okay. And I feel like mine is in the 95th percentile of graduates. Biomechanics is even worse. Like people who don't understand that, oh, you know, a, a squat. Yeah, it's a sagittal plane movement. That which movements are occurring in the transverse plane that impact depth, the impacts, yes. which impacts, um, you know, uh, squat patterning. Yeah. How do we adapt a, a sagittal plane movement that creates a very, very big uh, moment arm or a lever to the lower back for a tall athlete? How do we adjust that so they yeah. don't get that pain? Yeah. That comes about from a good understanding of biomechanics and anatomy. And you don't get that. Let's, let's be realistic. Universities that charge you well, 25 grand across three years, it's eight grand a year. Yep. In that one year, there's two 12-week semesters. So you spend 24 weeks at university. And that 24 weeks is going to cost you eight grand, which is basically 300, what, 320 bucks a week. So what are you learning for that $320 a week? That's, that's crazy. So I think when you look at it, you only, and, and that's sports science. That's not all degrees. That's my experience with sports science. It may have changed, but I know my sports science degree with two 12 week semesters for three years. You can't understand those things unless it's just laid and laid and laid and laid and laid. Um, unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. I'm sure there's things like having professors on tenure that are obliged to teach their units there's a certain number of social studies that they're obliged to integrate into those courses. So I, I know it's not as simple as that, but I think there should be three years of layering anatomy, three years of layering biomechanics, three years of layering physiology and three years of layering resistance training. And that way you graduate, you can be a personal trainer or a physio or a sports scientist or whatever, whatever. Cause in your fourth year, you can pick what you want to. Okay. Hold on, you froze real quick. Let me get you back and then I'll ask my next question. We're operating off that, that sweet, sweet hotspot that ain't always sweet, sweet. But we got another question by Scotty McGill. When I graduated, that happened to do that. Oh, we good. We caught back up. Um, yeah. Give me one sec, man. I was going to put my phone charge so my hotspot's a bit better. That'd be great. Thank you. Ellis on the move. All right. So while Ellis does that, I'm again about to ask him Scotty McGill's question. If you guys got any questions while you're listening to this, pop them in the comments, uh, the live chat, and I will ask Mr. Ellis. Um, I think I wanted, I'm going to definitely about to ask him about Cert 3 and 4 because um, as many of you listening will have done a Cert 3 and 4 with us or we'll be doing it in the near future. And I think a lot of those, those uh, foundation p- pivotal pillars apply to that. We good? I'm hoping so. All right. So three and four, you talked about degree in uni, right? And that's, but I wonder, 
what are the major gaps in knowledge do you think Cert 3 and 4 students have that you would tell them to plug? I actually don't think they do. I think Cert 3 and 4 students quite oftentimes have much better understandings because they refine their focus on a couple of things. Like it's not I know so broad. It's more narrow. No, it, it, it's, it's not. And my gut feel tells me, I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm confident that TAFE students where Cert 3 4s are often done through, um, their contact hours are generally greater than a degree. Like my, my degree was full-time, people considered full-time, 12 hours a week, contact hours. And that's on the proviso that I went to all my shoots and all my lectures, which... Are not compulsory, always. Which yeah. they're not. Yeah. Um, I went. I, I dragged myself out of bed at six, six o'clock in the morning every day and went because I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I don't think I missed the day of university through wagging as such uh, mm. at all. So um, I don't think there's a lot of gaps in the Cert 3-4. I think the Cert 3-4 now has improved. I think it's a bit of a, um, it's a, bit of a false narrative that they're, they're not good. I, I think a lot of them are good. It just depends on the quality of uh, how it's delivered and the care involved in the delivery to make sure there's a learning outcome as opposed to just getting the paperwork through, which is probably where the last few years it's been lacking. But I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a big gap. I think the, the good institutions do a really good job of saying, you're probably going to graduate and be a personal trainer. Let's set you up to be a personal trainer. And then if you want to go to university after that, you can. But I, I know from my experience, um, someone 12 months into a Cert 3-4 and someone 12 months into a sports science degree, I'd probably take the Cert 3-4. That is very interesting. But by the time you 12 months into the Cert 3 and 4, you've already got the summary of, you would have been completed by then. So you would have got the majority of everything, the base foundation. So I can yeah. see instead of just a really... And, and they generally go straight into second year of a sport exercise science degree. That's what the Cert 3 4 is. It's to take you as a pathway through. So... Um, yeah, look, I, I don't think there's a lot of gaps. And, and look, I, I can't speak to it in full confidence because I haven't done one. What about personal but trainers, I, though? I have, I have done one. <laughs> um, I did search for nutrition and dietetics, apparently. I don't remember doing it. But, oh, just um, a distant memory. Different, different, yeah. Um, what was that one, sorry? Um, personal trainers, though. What was that do next you, question? About personal trainers. Do you think that applies too? Like... What do you think the gaps are for personal trainers coming out of that Cert 3 and 4? Or do you think, no, that, you, that still applies? You got me, Ellis? Sorry, mate. I, I just lost you there. No, all good. All good. Um, you said personal trainers, something applies to them? Oh, well, I just realized when I'm asking that, it's a, it's the, it's similar answer. I was asking about how, all right, if there's the gaps in the Cert 3 and 4 education pillar, are there gaps in the personal trainer um, as a as a personal trainer, like are there major gaps that you see, but maybe they're very similar. You don't see that. I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think it's just refining a few different focuses. Okay, we got Jen actually asked, and I'll get to your question, Scotty. But on the topic of anatomy, physiology, biomechanics courses, actually, what courses would you recommend? What books would you recommend? And guys, stay tuned. We're going to be we got short courses coming on that, but for now. What would you tell them? Um, I've got some really good simple ones. I've got uh, starting strength is a really good one. Yes. That basically teaches you, it's Mark Ripito. 
that just takes you through the basic biomechanics of squat, dead, bench, and you can branch out from that. Um, I've got a book which is literally titled Human Physiology. <laughs> it was the first textbook I bought at university. Um, and you know it's like... A, beg your pardon? Do you know who that's by? Is that from Cells uh, to Systems? It could be. It could Laura, be. Um, Laura Lee Sherwood. That might be the one. Laura, yeah, I reckon that might be the one. Um, and that's probably where you just need need to start. Um, Anatomy Trains is pretty pretty solid. If anyone wants to read that, I'm not sure if anyone's ever read that before, but I think those things will sort of set you up on the right path to what you need to do. And I mean, if you can read Anatomy Trains and Starting Strengths and the Human Physiology book, if you can read those things and understand them, you're already going to cover much more than 12 one-hour lectures at university right? by far. And, and that, that's just the nature of accrual knowledge. And that's, that's the tough thing about where you have all these new students coming through degrees. I feel like degrees have never been questioned more for their validity within modern education. You know, if you could go back or let's say we have a young Ellis, a young Ellis, an old Ellis has a child. His name is young Ellis. And then he wants to do like, like dad does. Go do you help. tell him son, daughter, do a degree or do you tell him other pathway? Uh, I'd say degree. And it, it would be negligent of me to not say that because that's what the industry requires. Whether it should require or not is a different discussion. Um, but you, you need to do a degree now. That, that, that's the nature of what we do. Uh, I think it shows a, a base level of commitment, which is important because um, you do need that commitment to get through it. Whether that degree is particularly valid or whether there's other ways of doing it is up for discussion, but the, the, it, it requires it. And I have the same thing right now with people asking me, should I do a master's? Mm. What, what are you willing to invest? What are you willing to, what do you want as an outcome? And what are you willing to do to make it happen? Um, I've done a master's. Would I do it again? Um, yeah, it depends what day you ask me. Interesting. Okay. I, I think that there's, I think there's some things I do differently. I think there's some certain things I do differently. I would probably do components of it, say like a postgraduate uh, degree in strength and conditioning. I could have done three units instead of nine. And then maybe done like an MBA or a master's in uh, data analysis or even a master's in uh, physiotherapy or something totally different to complement my skill set rather than just enhance the same one. But having said that, I met some phenomenal people through that. I've got a lot of great uh, networks from it. I learned bits and pieces. I wouldn't say I learned a lot, but I learned some, the things I did learn were really pivotal. I just didn't learn a lot of them, if that makes sense. So um, I think what I'd probably do is just try and develop better understanding of simple stuff and then go to the experts when I need a complex topic. Okay. That, that's, I think it's a really logical process. Scotty has a question. Uh, obviously this day and age, I would argue a very good majority of coaches push influence and knowledge through social media. Jay, you're obviously not really known for this. Could you touch on why and the pros and cons of self-advertising and marketing through social media? Oh, I hope you didn't lose me. I lost you for a second. Sorry, I got you back. If you, if you actually say, the comments are actually on the live stream as well, but let me add it into the chat for you so you can read it in case you lose me again. Um, 
Very good majority of coaches just push influence and knowledge through social media. Jay, you're not really known for this. Could you touch on why and the pros and cons of self-advertising and marketing through social media? Okay, uh, I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, Here we go. I want to set myself apart and I would rather set myself apart through how I build relationships with people and I, I use my athletes as my resume. So for me, the value that I can detract from my working hours, if you guys still got me there. Yep. Um, if I can make an impact on those people I'm working with, that will generate firstly uh, better career opportunities, but it will generate far more income than the time that it would take for me to create social media content. So if I need to convince people on social media that I'm the right coach for them, that takes an inherent amount of time accordingly. That time will detract from something else, which is developing my skill set. So if I spend that same, and this is my ration, people are free to make their own. If I spend that time developing my skill set and impact my athletes, when they refer someone or recommend me, there's no sales process. So it's much more refined. I don't like sales. Um, it's part of my job. I don't like social media posting and I don't particularly like writing to be honest either. So if I can make those processes refined by getting better results with who I'm currently working with, that's all taken care of. That, that's one part of it. The second part is if I have X amount of time, which we all do, we have 168 hours in a week or 24 hours in a day to create content may take anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour to make it professional. That 30 minutes to an hour can be 30 pages of a book. It can be one to two journal articles, or it can be looking at other people's content. I'm not going to say for a second, I don't look at other people's content. Uh, I don't, don't often draw too much from it, but there's people out there that I would rather spend my time learning from than me passing information on. Uh, that's probably this, that's probably the second thing. Um, the third thing is is that I'm just not a very public guy. Um, I like having I like having my own space. I like having my own um, time, and I think there's a lot to be said because because everybody else is found on social media. There's a bit of an enigma around what I do, which then is actually really helpful because there's a sales strategy attached to that. When everything is at your utmost convenience, when everything is at your first touch and you can access it right away, it takes away that um, curiosity or that um, mystery that you have around what you do as an individual. Mm. So part of that is deliberate. But I mean, if I put out everything that I know and everything that I want to do, then people won't contact me asking what I can do and how I can help them. <laughs> so when they contact me, I like to have those conversations myself and look, it's, it may be something that I do, I do in the future. Um, I haven't totally ruled it out, but I just feel for me, my time can be uh, better spent elsewhere uh, for the large part. So um, when I, when I do have to speak to people about it, um, I'm pretty confident that both my, my experience and my background and my athletes and my clients 
as a resume, I'm pretty sure they, they will sell me already. Um, which, I mean, I've got 18 to 20 clients that I've never advertised. So it's worked pretty well so far. That's a, I think it's so important what you said is that you, and I know you're frozen, but I'm going to keep speaking so everyone else can hear. Um, oh, actually, I'll wait. I'll wait. There you go. Okay, awesome. Are you just stop okay. phrasing. Perfect. I think what's really important is that you are hyper self-aware. You realize the, how you value your time. It's very personal. And I think a lot of people are going to, they look at people like yourself, right? He's successful. He's done this. He's done this. I must adopt those philosophies. But you realize that those are your philosophies that work for you. That's how you value your time. And yeah. that may not be representative of what may work for another, but it may be as well. But I think people just copy. They just like copy like, oh, I'm going to take his, I'm going to take his without actually realizing whether it's something you internally, intrinsically connect with. Yeah, yeah. And the reality is there's not a lot of organic thoughts or organic... Well, there's not a lot of organic content, first and foremost. Yeah. There's lots of retweeting, lots of sharing, lots of copy and pasting, right? So if there's not a lot of organic content, there's not many organic thoughts. So where you go to to get those organic thoughts is a better use of my time, where they actually stem from. And it might mean reading boring books. <laughs> um, it might mean reaching to people who are not on social media because I just feel like the position that we're in now, this generation of coaches, we're leveraging off the fact there's been a lot of work done for decades by people ahead of us. Yeah. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that the most impactful people in my career, I don't, I think one, if I was to list the top five, one of them is on social media pretty uh, openly, old yes. mate uh, Wood. Yes. But um, Coach Thunder at NC State has an Instagram. Coach Thunder, let me look him up. Uh, page, but uh, Tim Rabus, who I was just saying, so Coach Coach Thunder has a page, but uh, Tim Rabus, you can't find him. There's some videos on, on YouTube of weightlifting at the national meets, but you won't find him. Uh, Pop, who I work with at Melbourne United now, uh, he has a LinkedIn profile, nothing on social media. Um, and that's two. Jamie Hepner, um, one of the, you know, he's the guy in America from sports science catapult point of view that the University of Alabama, the Dallas Cowboys, the Green Bay Packers, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the, um, the New York Knicks, he's the guy that they go to, not on social media, um, personally, but not uh, professionally. Uh, Matthew Pell, same thing. So I sort of sit there and go, well, these guys are being very decisive with where they spend their time. And that's what I aspire to be. So it, if I go into a private business down the track, it may become a necessity. But I, I also like the, uh, honestly, I, I like the enigma. And I like the fact that it makes people go, why aren't you on social media? Because it, <laughs> it started, it started like, this is why it started. Um, I laugh about it now. I'm like, do it, like, honestly, do I, do I need to be? Could I have more clients? P possibly. But I can't...
can't force. Stay with us, ladies and gentlemen. We will be back in a moment. Coach Thunder. Dan and like I'm, I'm busy. Like I'm, I'm flat out, so... And, and he, he's sorry. I know. I know you dropped out there, but here's the. Uh, whoops. Here's the. I got sorry. your audio. Yeah. Uh, so look, he, here's the other part in all of that. Nobody needs to hear my voice. <laughs> like, you know, there, there's other people out there. You should be directing your attention and uh, pure. Uh, what's the word? Affirmation for go look at some genuinely good influential people. Like, I'm 31. I've had a good career, but I'm learning from people up the chain. Like, go learn from those people. Don't learn from me. I don't have that much. I can help you in a way to a certain point, but the people that you need to learn from are not me. There's no point in me contributing to a mass market of saturated content because right now, here's the problem. No one can decide whether my content is any more or less valuable than someone else who does it. So I'm not going to spend my time fighting that battle because I could spend an hour writing a post on the good, the bad, the different of athlete preparation. And someone with no experience can do the same thing. And I'm leaving that interpretation of what's right and what's wrong or what's better and optimal. I'm leaving that interpretation open to the public. And I don't want to do that. Fair enough. I don't see the point in doing that. Look, the, you've made a decision and it's a deliberate decision. I think that's what's so important is that if you're going to do it, do it. And if like, just make sure it's deliberate and purposeful and thoughtful like you are. Yeah. Yeah. I want to like think it's those. Well, we're going with it. Otherwise it's just a great meme for Jay Ellis right now. <laughs> you got uh, another couple of minutes, Jay, to finish off with a case study. All right. Uh, i got all the time in the world, mate. You can go for it. Beautiful. All right. So, we're going to give you some case studies. My Wi-Fi, uh, on the other hand, may not. Yeah, well, we'll see. I'll put them in the chat anyway, just in case. Um, case study one. And these are brief, and it's going to be difficult to really, like, grasp the, the nuance, but because uh, you've frozen, I'm going to put it in the chat. And for those listening, ACL rehab, surgery, no surgery. Secondly... Yep. What is your process through early stage to late stage? Surgery or no surgery? Because we have copers and non-copers. Jordan talks about that a lot. Yep. Yep. Um, I think anytime you can avoid altering the human body in its natural format, the better. Um, well, Neuralink is going to be awkward then. What's that? Sorry, mate. I said Neuralink's, but going to be awkward then. Have you heard of that, Elon Musk? Yeah, I have. I have. <laughs> it's another topic. That's a talking chimps conversation. I feel like the human body is much more robust than we give it credit for. We're always looking to solutions which we will innately develop ourselves. Um, the human body is adaptable. It's robust. It can it can offset a lack of ligament by generating more strength and a hypertrophy of the surrounding muscles. But there's smarter people than me to make those decisions based on the context of the individual. Uh, I've done surgery. Uh, I certainly have my preference for rehab. I've rehabbed uh, patellar and quad graft, hamstring graft. Uh, I've rehabbed the Lars as well. Uh, so I've done... We'll get him back. 
stay with I'm us. basically the four main types of ACL rehab. My preference is a quad. Uh, surgery, no surgery. I'll let others make that decision. If they do surgery, my experience is quad grafts always are the best healers. Um, what is my process? I don't really think I need to do a whole lot in the first three to four months. I need to trust that they have a good surgeon, good physio and good early stage rehab. Putting that trust in other people is tough. Could I do that early stage rehab? Yes. Could I do it to the extent that other people who are highly skilled in the area could do? Absolutely not. So I'm happy to grab them about the three to four month mark when they're sort of looking to um, start weight training, start some basic sort of, you know, movements again, start some running eventually. That's when I'll take over. I, I don't, I, I'd like to be aware of what's going on in the first uh, early stage. I don't need to be physically hands-on with it. I don't need to be involved in, in the decision-making. I just need to trust other people to make those decisions yeah, for that's me. huge. Uh, late stage, uh, yeah, look, it, it, it is a trust thing. Yeah, so trust, yeah. I, I like to be aware of it. Um, I don't need to have, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. You have to have someone make decisions at some point in time, which is usually a physio or a doctor. That's their skill. They're far better than I. They always will be better at it than I am, even though I can have my opinion on it. Um, but late stage rehab, I feel, is probably the opposite. They need to trust me that I understand the, the constraints of the sport. I understand strength training. I understand adaptation to resistance. I understand understand biomechanics i understand um you know the and 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 sim similarly like I, I will advise them what i'm doing and how i plan to do it but i think it's important to trust that handover and have some sort of autonomy because end of the day I, I i know what works um i think i know what works, i should say everyone thinks they know what works but having that um exchange in ideas is also really important to have a good understanding of someone has to make the decision because if you can't be definitive the athlete doesn't get confidence. If the athlete doesn't get confidence, that's a big, big hit in the process. So absolutely. All right. That was a great summary on that. We'll go number two of Alex Karamuzis case studies right here. Um, I'll read them out and you're welcome to read them in the chat as well. Elite AFL athlete wants to get better athletically already hit some of the base markers for relative strength on squat, dead bench. Then where do you take it from there? What are the first variables you look and the questions that you ask to determine the needs analysis to improve them? Yeah. Um, probably not so much what they're doing. I mean, the numbers are there for what they're doing. It's how they're doing it is really important. Uh, that's the first thing that stands out to me. We, we've had a chat about this. I feel that strength is, is on a general to specific sort of spectrum. Strength is a bit more general. I think uh, power is a bit more specific. So I guess the thing that I'm looking to do, so it could be jumping, could be kicking, could be change of direction work, XL, D-cell, those sorts of things. So the high velocity, uh, powerful, very commonplace activities in their sport, that's where I'd spend my time. 
Um, but I've had athletes tell me they squat one and a half times body weight. I've had tell me they deadlift two times body weight. And you look at it and they don't. They move the bar, they pick it up, they don't deadlift it. They might be able to stand up with weights on their back, but are you squatting it? So there's certain parameters around how they're doing it, which is really important to me. If they are doing those things, I, I like to maintain strength through relatively hard load training, um, cluster sets, dynamic effort work. I think are really important. But end of the day, you're preparing them to perform on the field. So anything that can accentuate that from a, a power and speed training point of view, I think is a really good focus. I want to go one more if you're good and this internet can hold up. A short one. I'm good. It's giving me you know. Let's have a look. All right. I'll put it in. We're talking junior basketball athlete here. And hopefully this gives people thinking about how they can process their own problem solving with their clients. Junior basketball athlete, improving athletic performance. This is very general. When you have a junior athlete specifically, what do you think are the main targets that you want to hit? Especially going through adolescence, male and female can be different rates of growth and development. It's got to be considerate of that. Um, that's probably the most extensive question of the lot. Um, look, they need to be stronger. They need to be powerful. They need to be faster and they need to be robust. So then we look at how do we develop that? We develop that through a mixture of, I guess, what we've spoken about, weightlifting derivatives, track and field derivatives, uh, martial arts, yoga derivatives, and some gymnastics sort of stuff, including, you know, plyos, isos, that sort of thing. So that's a general sort of makeup, which we've gone through previously. Uh, I guess the thing is then you look at the demands of the sport. You need to have high intensity intermittent efforts, what facil- I think what you're going to say is what facilitates that strength. Cardiovascular endurance. Power. Still got you frozen, Ellis. Should be just another couple seconds. No, we lost him. We lost him entirely. Ellis has left the building. Now it's just me. You guys don't need to hear me talk. We'll try and get Ellis back at least to uh, finish off the conversation. Um, just trying to do it with something a little bit different, guys, and give some case studies. Uh, while we wait, Ellis will attempt to rejoin if he has his internet connection back. But if you guys got any questions... In the meantime, um, hopefully I can help either ask it or you guys got any questions for myself. Um, I think, you know, while we wait on Ellis, I don't know if I'm, I'll interrupt myself if he joins, but well, my, in, so Ellis, Jay Ellis, he has his role at Melbourne United um, is a paid uh, strength and conditioning role. Um, 
whereas my role was an internship um, when I was a little bit younger. I was 24, I believe, and they were under different management and they had different people working there, specifically the high performance manager, Eric Collinsworth, who I've told you, Jeremy, about, but we haven't, I don't think we've really gone deep into it, talking about, you know, how that was a, such a pivotal experience for me. Um, and it taught me a lot and learning under Eric, for those who don't know, he is, he was the high performance manager um, for, sorry, the high performance manager for Melbourne United. But what he did do was he was the head of athletics Australia. And he, you know, he's been in the news a little bit previously working with pro athletes and having, um, you know, uh, there was this famous uh, disagreement that, that he had um, with somebody, uh, Sally Pearson, I believe. Um, but that's not really uh, relevant to my learnings. My learnings was, you know, how to, was more on the communication side, how to stay dispassionate and objective with you yourself and your clients. Those are huge learnings. He's he's laser focused. He's not emotional. He just gets the job done and he tries to take emotion out of a field that is already so ridden with emotion. Um, Focus on the message being told and what you're being told with no emotion filter behind it. That was, that was a lesson um, on how to detach from myself and just communicate without the agenda of emotion. Yeah, a quote that I wrote down, I'm looking at my notes from him. The best people and coaches are the ones who don't have the answers. They find it in other people. That's a quote from him. Whether you agree with that or disagree with that, the best people and the coaches are the ones who don't have the answers, but they find it in other people. So that's looking to delegate to people around you um, to help facilitate a strong, cohesive team instead of always trying to do everything. And I think Jay talked about it today when trusting the allied health professional process, trusting um, other people in that process and realize, all right, get the dietitian, you know, get that specialist in health if you need to. And Ellis, and I'm going to leave it there, guys. I won't go on about my learnings from United, um, but Ellis just messaged me. He's down for the count, and it doesn't look like he's able to recommend it. Oh. oh, wait, hold on. He's in the waiting room. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Ellis has gotten up from a 10-second count. Jay Ellis has just risen before the bell. Ding, ding, ding. Wow. All right, I'm on the old phone here, guys, so bear with me. All right, Ellis. I just I was just chatting to the people for a minute. Um, you all good now? Hopefully so, mate. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. Well, look, you want to finish off what you were saying, junior basketball athlete? Uh, yeah, so I guess um, where do we get to? So, yeah, look, in terms of where, where I train them from, it's looking at the demands of the sport, running, cutting, jumping, uh, Excel, Decel is where you probably start. So what will facilitate that is uh, good levels of strength, good levels of speed, good levels of conditioning, and also the, the, motor, the motor control and skill of those specific movements. So teaching them to Decel, teaching them to accelerate, teaching them how to cut efficiently, knowing that in, in the core it's more dynamic, it's more, um, uh, what's the word, uh, reactive it's, it's less less predictive so 
knowing that it, it will be imperfect on the course, I think it's important to try and perfect those moves in the gym where you can, especially at a young level. Um, and when I say perfect from a technical, um, a technical point of view for those movements, and then just keep layering it um, at different constraints as they get better, um, overload them in terms of frequency, duration, volume, intensity, all those sorts of things, and, and just changing the, made it a really well-rounded development from that point of view. Well-rounded. I think that's definitely something where a lot of the times we hyper-specialize with young athletes and they just do the one sport for like from adolescence or from uh, childhood all the way through. And I, I think there's many arguments against and the downsides to only specializing in one gross motor skill. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's definitely arguments for and against. There's been some really good research um, uh, actually come out uh, for sport specialization. So, from a skill um, perspective or from like a gross motor skill? like Yeah, so okay. from a technical skill development. Yeah, it makes sense. Point of view. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a generalist. And the reason I'm a generalist is probably because I'm not good enough to be a specialist. So I, I use what I consider to be the best training methods at the time. And um, I, I think, like I said, if you're training an 11-year-old basketballer, there should be some subtle but minimal differences to how you would train an 11 year old soccer player or an 11 year old netballer or an 11 year old lacrosse player. Um, it's all very basic at that level. And, and you're really doing them a disservice if you're not, because I think the thing is, which is lacking in uh, today's society is physical, physical education at school is not physical education. It's very theoretical. Um, there's no, there's no climbing monkey bars. There's no using, uh, you know, pommel horses for pole vaults. There's no mini trampolines anymore. There's no jumps, tumbles, lands throws so i think it's your job to pick up the slack where that's missing and make a very well-rounded athlete from that regard as they move on um i guess you can start to look at some more sort of specific strategies well said i think that's a great place to round out this conversation with those three case studies jay ellis i would ask where people can find you but we've already talked about that but do you have any last comments thoughts asks of our audience anything you want to leave them with uh, no, look, I mean, look, in, you can find me. I'm findable. I'm not a total recluse off the grid yet. Um, yet. Is my life goal to be as such eventually? Uh, and I'm working towards it. I'm actually working towards deleting everything soon. So, um, and this year has been really good for me to trial run that. So, so we'll um, just have to like ride to your house, come to your house, knock on your yeah. door, send some and carrier pigeons. Look, you can text me on, on a third, knock your 3310. You can call me. <laughs> Get off the grid, man. Absolutely. There's something for that. My greatest wish, if I can make it happen yeah. in the immediate it'll, it'll be tough because my job is reliant on technology. So I sort of need a smartphone for those sorts of things. But I'm, uh, I'm considering buying like a, a, a phone, and this is this radical concept, a phone for text and calls. Whoa. I know. Crazy, right? So I'm actually, I'm actually looking into it at the moment, um, how I can sort of run my life on a a phone for texting and calling yeah and i will use my smartphone as needed for emails on the go and etc but i'm hoping to have that set up um you know, later this later this year early next year i'll have a phone and i'll have a smartphone and my smartphone is more of a tablet so this uh, is becoming more common now i'm hearing more people do it because they care about privacy and their data being used and social media addictions and i think there's a lot of merit to it well, it's not so much the data, man. I mean, look, you know what you saw. I mean, you, most people don't know. 
you know what you sign up for with those things. Uh, the government don't care what I'm doing. And my data is so not valuable because I don't get convinced by sponsored ads that, oh, you need more roll-ups. No, no, I already know that. <laughs> I, don't that. Um, I don't need to be recommended similar type products to roll-ups because I'm not going to buy uh, a fake roll-up. I'm going to buy what I want and I want. And I, I think the thing is, I'm aware of how my data is used. I'm, a, I'm aware of why it's used for the most part. Um, that's the downside. But the upside is that I use social media to connect with friends and family. Um, it allows me to do things like this. So yeah. it's all right. I don't like that. I don't like data, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. But it, in a lot of ways, it helps. So I, I'm, I'm looking towards making my life into a, a tablet and phone, not a smartphone. So uh, look, if you can find me, I, I don't mind. Um, if you want to put my email address in the uh, links below, whatever, that's cool. Yep. Like I said, I, I don't want to get to the point in my life where I'm inaccessible. I like to be accessible to help people if I can, or, or be, I think there's better options out there. Um, so yeah, look, contact me on LinkedIn, contact me on uh, email. They would be my preferences from a professional standpoint. Um, if you have my details to contact me personally, that's probably for a reason. So just to um, check, do you, you're okay with me giving out your outlook? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Right. Put that in the comments. Done. Um, yeah, so you can get me on Outlook. You can get me on my, on my LinkedIn. Um, yeah, yeah. The people who contact me through my personal means, um, I don't really care. Whatever, man. This is what it is. All right. Jay Ellis, another great <laughs> conversation, my friend. Thank you for doing uh, this. Oh, that's pretty good. I didn't talk that much today. Hour and, hour and a half. Ah, that was super succinct and like direct, like bang, bang, bang. We got out a lot of good stuff. All right, my man. No probs. I'll talk to you tomorrow and I'll see you then. No probs. All right. Take care, guys. See you, Jay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Jay Ellis has officially, officially left the building now. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Jay Ellis is a little bit of a different cat. You know, I've said that to him before. You're a different cat, Jay Ellis, and he laughs. Um, he's a different cat, and he's one of my favorite human beings that I am. I feel very privileged to know, and I know he's, he would just push aside that credits and say, you know, the mentors that have taught me are the ones you should pay attention to. But he, I, I believe, and I think the people who he learns from, uh, the, the people who learn from him, you know, he, he is a phenomenal mentor and teacher, and I'm very grateful to be speaking to a guy like him. And I'd highly recommend coaches listening right now. If you want to improve yourself as a strength and conditioning coach, as a personal trainer, and you have specific problems that you want to solve systems, things to understand, contact a guy like Jay. And I would say book time with him and pay for his time, but he's going to be the type of guy to be so kind. Like he'll go out to a coffee for you for free and you will spend two hours talking to you and give you hundreds of dollars worth of value that could change your career. Like, that's how much of a good guy. But out of the grace of, I think, the respect of a coaching relationship, I'd really recommend that you guys contact a guy like Jay Ellis to learn from him. With He has been one of the most pivotal mental coaching role model figures in my career, in my life, over the last five-ish years since I've known him. Man, I can't believe it's been that long. Four or five years. And I'd highly recommend you guys get in contact with him. If you want to get more in the nuanced of strength and conditioning, sports science, um, program periodization anatomy physiology he's very good but i hope you guys enjoyed that this is 
webinar Wednesday number 26. Damn, we did a lot of these. I think it's 26, 25, um, and 24, excuse me. We do this every week. You guys can put your email in the contact box if you right here if you want to know more about being notified when we do this. We've done a whole bunch of different guests. You can find it on all podcast platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, everything. I'll leave you guys at that. This is a bit of a longer one. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Alexander Emanuel. Before I finish, Orphic Education, who we are, we facilitate the delivery of Cert 3s and 4s in fitness. Jen, you asked before, hey, what are the best courses for anatomy, physiology, biomechanics? We will be releasing and working to create something like that in the future. So stay tuned for that. Got things in the pipeline. I'll leave it at that. But if you guys are interested or know somebody's interested and serious about becoming a personal trainer and coach, we may be the right fit for you. Head to our website, watch a couple, see, let's have a look at our content, listen to our podcast, see if we resonate. If we do, let us know. We'll see how we can help you. Otherwise, I'm Alexander Emmanuel Sandalis. Thank you guys for listening. I've got a long name, a very long name. If you want to know more about me, you can Google me. Oh, hopefully some stuff will come up. You, unlike Jay, you can find me very readily. I talk a lot on the internet. I have two podcasts, this being the second one. So you can hear thousands of hours of me talking all types of chimps with all types of chimps. If you know what that means, you know. Otherwise, I'll see you guys next week. Appreciate you guys listening. Stay well, stay safe. Much love.